Well, I'm delighted to be here. I hope you are this morning as well as on this Palm Sunday. The kids did a wonderful job at the beginning, didn't they? They had these microphones. They were mostly just for show. Wow, they were loud. That was fun. I love that energy. A uh, great way to start. When I was uh, about a decade ago, I was a chaplain, a hospital chaplain, for a short while. Um, and I know I've shared a number of stories from those days. They were very impactful days, even for six months of hospital chaplaincy. But I remember I was one Palm Sunday, I was on shift. Uh, it was from 8 to 5 kind of thing. I came in and I checked the, the register of uh, calls I needed to make uh, throughout that morning and through the day. It wasn't a busy day, it looked like. It was Palm Sunday. Uh, I was getting ready to do some services, and uh, I checked the phone messages. There was a phone message from somebody, uh, just one. It was uh, a brother in New York. He called me. He said, you know, my sister... Uh, she's in the ICU. I know it's Palm Sunday today. I bet she would really be blessed. It would brighten her day if you, somebody brought her a palm today. And so I thought, well, of course I want to brighten someone's day, and this is what I do. So I, I look around, and I realize nobody purchases palms at the hospital for Palm Sunday, at least not at this one. Uh, I couldn't leave. Nobody else was there to get them. So I had the first problem on my hands is, where do I get a palm on Palm Sunday to take? Because I want to brighten this woman's day. So I look outside the office, and sure enough, there's a Draconea palms out there, uh, kind of just outside the chaplain's office. So I do this little clandestine operation, taking a scissors and kind of just clipping one off. And uh, I put the scissors away, and I go walking down to the ICU, ready for this wonderful moment. I gently knock on the door. I slowly walk in. I say, you know, your brother uh, called from New York. He said you would just really love a palm on Palm Sunday. To which she said, oh, that meddling string of expletives and just starts going off on her brother. I can't believe he would do that. And she's just so angry. And so after a little awkward silence of her saying all this, I I looked at her and I said, would would you like the palm? Yeah, you can just sit down. And so I set it down, and she promptly dismissed me. I had very different expectations of how that was going to go. Obviously, she had different expectations, too, of what was about to happen. But we have those moments, don't we? We we expect one thing, and a completely other thing happens. Sometimes really good things happen. Sometimes really poor things happen, or it's way uh, below our expectations. And I don't know if you've thought about the fact that typically when we're disappointed in life, it's often because of unmet expectations. That's what does it. We expect something, it didn't happen, we're disappointed, and that really can lead to disillusionment, too, if it keeps going on. That is, it kind of rocks our foundations and can even lead to cynicism if we let it go far enough. But this happens to us all the time. That, that we expect one thing and another thing happens. I expected when I asked my kids to clean the room, they would clean the room, right? I expect if I asked my husband to do the dishes, somebody might say that he would do the dishes. Somebody might think, well, in my job, I thought it would be more fulfilling or I thought I'd make more by this point. Somebody might think, you know, I thought my marriage would be happier. Or they think, I saw the picture on Pinterest and this is what happened, right? <laughs> we have these expectations and the reality is often very different. The same thing happens when we think about Jesus and the work that God is doing in the world and what we expect to happen. I thought when I followed Jesus, somebody might think I'd be free from all trouble. I thought when I followed Jesus, he would give me the desires of my heart. If I just prayed for the right things the right way, I thought when I followed Jesus, 
as I tried to draw closer to God, that he would heal my family, heal my body, heal, my, heal this land, whatever it is, that he would return by now and free us from evil and injustice. We had these expectations of what we think is going to happen and the reality of what actually is happening around us. And as we enter into the Palm Sunday text from Mark today, where Jesus has this triumphal entry, you have a world of expectations. People expected a deliverer of some kind to come in Israel. But some of them, if you follow the events of Holy Week, it leads to disillusionment for some of them. It shakes their foundations. Where is this going, Jesus? Where are you taking us? And I don't want us to, this is a sermon not just for today. I want this sermon to enter into Holy Week or enter you into Holy Week, actually. And don't go to the Resurrection Sunday yet. Don't, don't get there yet. Walk with the disciples and walk with me of the expectations that they had. But let's recognize something that Jesus was doing when he makes his triumphal entry as through his whole ministry. He's pointing to something that's coming. When you and I drive, uh, if you take the interstate, we're driving into Lincoln, either from east or west, it doesn't matter. You'll see signs that say, Lincoln, next seven interchanges. And when you get to different signs, you'll see Northwest 48, or you'll see Highway 6, or Highway 77, or even further back, you'll see State Capitol coming up, you know, turn into Lincoln when you see the interchanges. And we know nobody in their right mind looks at those signs and says, that sign is the city of Lincoln. No, it points to where we're supposed to go. It points to what's coming up and what's happening. And Jesus is doing that. He's doing some of the reality of kingdom work right now, but there's signs pointing to the hope that we have, to the work of redemption that is to come. Jesus will deliver. It's already begun. And if you follow Jesus, that begins even now. But he's putting these signs out there of what the kingdom is going to be. And just like when he says the kingdom is like a mustard seed, a really tiny seed that's going to be planted in the ground, but before you know it, birds are going to be nesting in its branches. So too the kingdom is growing around us. Jesus pointed to what would be and began the work, even at this triumphal entry as he comes in. And so the question I have for you this morning as we consider this, and we're going to look in Mark 11, but we're going to start in Zechariah 9. I encourage you to follow along in either of those. If you're following along, we're going to start in Zechariah 9. Um, and if you don't find that quick enough, we'll be in Mark 11 eventually. But the question to ask is, do your expectations line up with Jesus' actions this morning? Does, does what Jesus do actually lines up with what you expect him to do? Whenever you read the text, whenever you consider your life and the work of Jesus in your life, does it look like what you expected Jesus to do? I want to engage the story ahead and consider that question. Let's go to Zechariah 9. It should come up on the screen here. In Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, a passage that pointed to the Messiah, people knew it pointed to the Messiah, they've been looking at passages like this pointing to the day when the Messiah would come, the long-promised deliverer of Israel. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river. The Euphrates is what that's pointing to. That is where everything began to the ends of the earth. So the whole thing is going to be under his 
king, kingly rule. That's what they're looking forward to. Ephraim in this is Israel. That's what it always refers to. Jerusalem refers to Judah, the southern kingdom. It also refers to the city. But, but what you see here within the text is the one who's going to come and put it all together. But the place that this person has to start is putting together God's covenant people who are already broken and fractured. You can see that even in the text. Because by this point in Israel's history, they've lived under three kings where they're unified, but then division came in very quickly. And it's really due to their own disobedience that division comes in. These 12 tribes that were supposed to be one people, the priests of the world, to show who God was to everybody and bring them into God's presence are a fractured people that broke into two different kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And it was their disobedience that took them there. And then it's their disobedience that takes them even further away from God over time. And finally, into exile, where the northern kingdom gets conquered, then the southern kingdom gets conquered, and some of them are dispersed to other lands. And finally, about 500 years before Jesus' time, there's this slow trickle back to the land. And they start to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that were broken. They start to put back together the temple that was grand in Solomon's day and had been destroyed in that final sort of exile uh, conquest under the, the Babylonians. But the temple never looked the same again. It was never as grand. It was never right. And they never really enjoyed peace in the land for so long. Those 500 years up until Jesus' time for when people start trickling back. Until then, they're under the, the rule of Alexander the Great. He conquers. And all of his uh, people that follow him conquer and take over. And sometimes they have peaceful moments and sometimes they have really unpeaceful moments. And then they have this short window where, where some Jewish rulers come and take over and become rulers. Uh, they take back the land. And then the Romans come in. And that's the world that you find Jesus in. And you find people who have sort of learned their lesson by this point. But the lesson they've learned is let's never lose the land again. Let's never, let's never lose it due to our disobedience. And so you have all these factions that break off and in good intentions grow over time. So you have like the Pharisees. We hear about them a lot. Now don't assume every Pharisee is bad, by the way. But there were a whole lot of them that had the wrong intent. They looked right on the outside, but they didn't have the heart on the inside. They put their faith in the law, not in God's work within them, too often. You have groups like the Sadducees who controlled the temple, but they had buddied up to the government. That was their way of staying safe and secure. You had a group outside of the New Testament that's worth noting called the Essenes. These people who formed their own community. They're like monks is what they are. Forming their own community and separation and purity. They're going to follow the prophecy and look for this redeemer away from everybody else. Then you have the zealots. You run to those in the New Testament. The people who are going to take it back by the sword. They're going to kill in order to get back the rule of the land. And so you have people in the ancient world in Jesus' day who do the same thing we do and put their faith in the wrong things. They put their faith in money. They put their faith in morals. They put their faith in the law, in self, in the acceptance of others, in government, whatever it is. All kinds of other things, in strength. But not God in the end. One th two things that they did have, though, generally, is that when it came to the expectation of what this Messiah was going to do, most of them had this expectation of a Messiah. And the ones that did, you can pick out two things that they knew that this Messiah would do. One is he's going to conquer their common enemy, whoever oppresses them, in this case the Romans, who rule the land. 
He's going to free them from the Romans or whoever it is whenever the Redeemer comes. And the other thing is, he's going to restore the temple in all its glory. Because in their time, they could see that the temple was corrupt. And Jesus, of course, comes in and, and highlights that uh, after his triumphal entry by flipping over the tables and, and driving out the money changers. There was corruption in the temple. So they had this hope in what was going to happen. And sometimes those expectations ran high. This was not the only triumphal entry that had happened. Other people had tried it, had come into Jerusalem. They knew what to look for, the signs to look for. They knew the messianic texts to read. They, they had studied this stuff. They had a hope. Sometimes it was a misguided hope, though. And as you, as you narrow down and focus and look at the disciples then and what they had in mind with Jesus and, and walking around with Jesus, they're starting to see some of the reality of what Jesus is doing and starting to put the pieces together of who this guy is. They see Jesus walking through the land and physically healing people from disease. Okay, others have done that, but, but Jesus is doing it a lot in, in ways we haven't seen. They see Jesus walking around and releasing people from demons. That's an ominous sign right there among God's covenanted people that there's so many demons in the land. But Jesus is releasing them. Okay, this is a big deal. Then they see him walking on the water. Okay, that's an even bigger deal. We haven't seen that one before. They're starting to put the pieces together. He feeds the 5,000. He feeds the 4,000 if you follow the progression of Mark. And then, before the triumphal entry, you have Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, a real pagan center, where he asked, who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. But Jesus makes the question pointed, who do you say I am, disciples? And Peter makes the confession. He's the one who flags it. You're the Messiah. You're the one we're waiting for. We know it. We've been seeing it. They're starting to put two and two together. And then the big fun thing happens where the transfiguration occurs and Jesus takes the three closest to him up and Jesus is standing there with the superstars of the faith, Elijah and Moses. I mean, it couldn't get more real than that that he's standing there. Peter doesn't even know what to do with himself. I love Peter. I don't think I have the tenacity of Peter, but Peter doesn't even know what to do with himself. Let's build tents. Let's do something, Jesus. This is the biggest thing ever. And then it's to Jerusalem. We know who you are. Now we're going to Jerusalem at Passover. This is the big moment. Their expectations are high for them. And then you get to Mark 11. And Jesus gives these instructions. Mark 11, 2 and 3. We'll just see the words of Jesus this morning and, and mull on those for a moment. He sends two of his disciples. And he says, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. What do we learn about Jesus from these statements, from what he's doing? Two things. First, Jesus is actually one of these rare moments revealing himself as the Messiah. He's the anointed king in the line of David that they've been waiting for. He's letting them in. I know who I am too. You guys are figuring it out. I'm letting you in on this. And it's a very rare moment because I don't know about you, but when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Jesus has those hush-hush moments, I'm confused, right? He's like, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. Oh, I healed you. Don't tell anybody. Don't, no, let's keep it down. And, and sometimes we wonder, okay, we have 
the ability to look at the whole text and look at what the gospel writers are doing, and they're not just flagging him as the Messiah, but as divine, as God incarnate. And we think to ourselves, why didn't Jesus just come out and say it? Why, Jesus, why couldn't you just say, I'm God in a human body here to take care of everything? Why didn't you just say it? And, and I would liken that to uh, why he didn't say it to uh, a guy that used to sleep in front of um, a restaurant in Chicago I used to frequent who claimed to be Jesus. Uh, and people would walk by and they'd, they'd engage him in conversation. But really the attitude is, oh, that's just Bill. He pretends to be Jesus. You know, the bar would be set so high Jesus could never achieve that. I mean, he can, but people would never believe it. Oh, that's just Jesus. He claims to be God. Why didn't Jesus then, if we take it down a notch, why didn't he just claim to be the Messiah? Well, you can see the expectations were off the charts and in all kinds of different directions if you look at what they expected the Messiah to do, if you research that. So what Jesus is doing doesn't really look like what they're all expecting in all the different ways they're expecting. So again, the bar is set high in a, in a, a way that's just going to be a little bit... They're not going to see it. So what does Jesus do? He shows them who he is. He reveals it in his actions, not really his words. And people start to put the pieces together. And he knows it. And this is one of those moments where he lets people in. I know what I'm doing here. Do you? So if you look at something like Matthew 11, you don't need to find it. Uh, Just a couple verses will come up on the screen. Where John the Baptist has this moment of doubt. He's captured. He says, are you the one? He sends his disciples to Jesus. Are you the one that's to come, the one we're waiting for, or should we wait for another? And Jesus' response is, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. The Messiah texts you've been waiting for are happening in me. That answers the question for him. Yes, this is the one we've been waiting for. He's been revealing it by his actions. The Messiah is here. But what we also see here is that Jesus is a different kind of Messiah, a king, and a different kind of Messiah and king than we expected. All those expectations, they had all these different streams of expectations people had. If you read the scholarly literature on what did people expect the Messiah to look like, they can't pin it down on any one or two things. The only two threads are the two threads I've told you. They expected the temple to be restored and the oppressors to be thrown off by this Messiah. Everybody else had completely different ideas. So much so that some of the scribes and Pharisees who studied this over the years came to the conclusion that maybe there wasn't going to be one Messiah, but two Messiahs, a king in the line of David and a conqueror because of those two different tasks and the way they understood the text. The Essenes, these people we never read about in the New Testament, but lived in that period, they had another, they added a third one in some cases because they saw these passages about a suffering servant. And they're like, well, maybe that there's going to be a third one. There's going to be this king. There's going to be this conqueror. There's going to be this sufferer. But as you enter in, as Jesus does this triumphal entry and walks into Holy Week, you discover that, no, all of those things are encapsulated in one person. This Messiah is going to do all of these things. And, and what's really interesting about the story is that when you look at the cult, when they go to get the cult, what kind of a cult is it? Well, it's young, first of all. It's unridden. It's holy. It's a thing set apart. It's unused for any of its intended purposes at this point. And a holy thing is a thing set apart. It's fit for a king and fit for a messiah. What Jesus does when he rides in then, He reveals himself as the Messiah. 
we see that, that things are a little different than we expected because this is an animal of peace. People had made triumphal entries before, and what do they do? They ride a horse, right? You're victorious. Jesus comes in on an animal of peace, an unridden, holy, fit-for-a-king animal, and he challenges the authorities by doing that. Just the mere act of riding in, of the disciples stoking the crowd with messianic texts, like we heard from Psalm 118, Hosanna, save us, save us. That was one of the texts people pointed to. That's what's going to happen. They're throwing uh, the palm branches down and the cloaks down. Jesus is challenging the authorities. Now, this was Passover. There were lots and lots of people that amassed in Jerusalem at this time. The religious authorities uh, among uh, the Jewish religious authorities would have seen this as a, a challenge. The Romans would have seen it as, let's keep our ears out, but this wouldn't have looked triumph, triumphal to them at all. Triumphal entries to the Romans were off the charts. But this is clearly a challenge to the powers that be. And Jesus is giving something that just looks, it's, it's there with their expectations, yet at the same time he's saying, I think this is going to be different than you expect. Follow me. They knew the signs. They're seeing it play out. But it's looking a little different all of a sudden than they expected from this Messiah. And what I want to point out is the, the reality of the matter is Jesus will set our expectations in the right direction if we have eyes to see. I mean, Mark, if you read the Gospel of Mark, he, he's setting us in the right direction. The people living at the time didn't get that advantage. They had to figure it out and piece it together, but Jesus is giving them the clues. But as with the people in Jesus' day, we have to ask the question, what is it that I expect out of Jesus? And actually transition that to the better question, what does Jesus actually do? What, what do I actually see Jesus accomplish and do? And in light of that, if I follow Jesus, what does that mean for me? If I'm one who follows Jesus and I, I'm going to look at what Jesus did, what does that mean? What does Jesus ask of me if I follow him? And I would challenge you to do some investigation this week. Follow the facts of Holy Week. Follow the facts of Jesus riding the donkey. Follow it in with him. And see where he goes. And see what you've missed in the past and see what you've gotten right. And make sure that the expectations you have of what Jesus does then and will do in your life now meet up. And secondly, expect the unexpected when you do it as you follow Jesus' sin. Because the question I, I, I post to you for this entire week is, do your expectations line up with Jesus' actions? And I have a couple of just challenging thoughts for you uh, as you kind of follow Jesus in this week. Because I'm, I'm not one who over the years has embraced the church calendar wholeheartedly, but I've done it a lot more over the past few years because I'm kind of tired of embracing the LPS calendar is how we do church. So I have no problem with the LPS calendar. I just, it's not the church calendar. There's something remarkably strong about coming to a time of year like this and looking at these texts at Palm Sunday and walking with Jesus on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and seeing what happens and trying to live the story with Jesus so that we're challenged to become like Christ. So my, my simple challenges to you that are this. Uh, don't skip to next Sunday yet. Live out the difficulties of this week. Sit down this week in your study of Scripture. Chart out the time and open up one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, 
And you don't even have to start at the beginning. You know, if you start in Mark, it's 16 chapters. You can start in Mark 11 and read the last week of Jesus and the, and the end in the next five days if you do a chapter a day at 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. If my math is wrong, that's all right. That's not what I do. But study Jesus intently this week, and that final week especially. Read it with great care. Take some time to really dig in and digest. And and some of you prayed over the last few weeks, and you tried an activity where you actually kind of read the text, closed your eyes, and put yourself in it. Do that this week. Read when Jesus is with the Sanhedrin. Shut your eyes and think, where am I in this story? Am I with Jesus? Am I with the, the guys accusing him? Am I a passive observer? What does that mean about what Jesus is calling me to be and who I am right now? What's the difference between those two? Think to yourself, as you read about Peter standing there where he denies Christ, where am I in that scene? Am I a denier or am I with Jesus? What does that say about who Jesus needs to call me to be if I follow him? As you do that, grapple with Good Friday Wrestle with Monday, Thursday. We offer a Good Friday service here, 6.30 this Friday. Join us to walk through the text. We're not doing Monday, Thursday. Go to another church and try it out if you've never done that before. Read the text from John 16. A new command I give you, love one another. And then come on Good Friday and discover what that love means. It's different than how we define it often around us. Because sacrifice comes with discipleship we discover with Jesus. And finally, this one I'll I'll challenge you with. I'm going to try this this year. The Saturday between Good Friday and Easter is is often reserved as a day of fasting and prayer because in that day Jesus' body rested in the tomb. Try it. Make it holy this year. Make that Saturday holy. Maybe fasting is what you need to do. Maybe it's not food. Maybe you need to fast from something else. But somehow take that day and set it apart to experience the gravity of why Jesus is in the tomb and what that asks of me, of you. Make sure your expectations line up with the reality of what Jesus is doing, has done, and has called you to do and to be this year. Let's pray together. Lord, the road of Jesus is one of sacrifice, and that's what love looks like. Of giving all that he had to give that we would have life abundant. God, help us experience the abundance of that life even now. Help us enter into the story this week of the excitement and the expectation of Palm Sunday. Jesus riding in and just being high with excitement of what could be. Of being able to experience the the thrill of Jesus saying the temple is going to be cleansed. Of of, of experiencing the thrill of, of being able to see that redemption, a clear path to redemption could be there. That we wouldn't be cheated and conned by those around us of false salvation. God, help us not cheapen love. 
Help us not walk too briskly past the sacrifice of your son Jesus on Good Friday. Draw us into your presence that we may experience the gravity of your love, the fact that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, and your grace is there for us. Father, let us experience all of that this week. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.